Hi everyone and welcome to what is undoubtedly going to be a very controversial but I think necessary podcast in management consulting. Now what I'm going to say is not going to make some people feel well about themselves and it's going to upset some people but I think it must be said because it is a fact. Just because things are uncomfortable does not mean we should not discuss it. Now one of the things I tell some of my friends you know is that if you are born as a Europe with European features, if you're born white in inverted commas, you know, blue eyes, brown eyes, and you have white features, you know, the quintessential European look of um, you know green or blue eyes and blonde hair, and if you are male, you have been given a genetic jackpot. It's like going to the Olympic Games and a lot being allowed to start the hundred meters a full two seconds ahead of your competition. Now, I, I'm not saying that males of European descendancy do not face debilitating um, obstacles in life. That's what I'm saying. But I am saying all other things being equal. If you are European-looking and if you are male, you have an enormous advantage in the world. And if you are European and you're female, you have an advantage as well. Not as much as the males, but you have quite a significant advantage. And today's podcast, as you may figure out, is about racism in management consulting, which I think is a particularly big problem. You know, I am dark skinned. People who've met you will, 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 you know, people who've met me, sorry, you know, will, will testify to the fact that I don't fit the typical stereotype of a management consultant from New York or from, I don't know, Denmark with, you know, nice um, sandy colored hair or blonde hair. And I faced my my fair share of having to deal with particularly brutal clients. So racism is a difficult issue in management consulting. It's never discussed, you know. If you look at all of the websites that, you know, are out there, you know, the issues that McKinsey is putting forward and so on, they talk about bringing in more females they talk about you know bringing in more uh, african americans in the united states but beyond african americans they don't really discuss issues of what is it like to be a i don't know a um, student from latin america doing work in the middle east um, and someone from the indian subcontinent doing work in some parts of the world and i, I think they kind of downplay the issue quite substantial substantially now, the thing that is quite alarming about racism in management consulting is that you know if, if you look at the, the big debate about a, a prejudice you, know, you always get the emerging economies telling people from the United States and Japan and Europe that, you know what, guys, you are the ones who need to accept us and you need to do more to accept us. So there's this belief that, you know, prejudice, racial prejudice is an issue between developed and emerging economies. And I have news for you. The emerging economies are the worst culprits in the world when it comes to this. They they pale in com. I mean, the, the developed world pales in comparison to what you're going to face if you are in, you know, in India, China, Japan, Vietnam, Thailand, parts of Africa, Latin America, and so on. You know, there was recently an, a, an a situation. Well, maybe the word situation is a bad choice here, but for those of you who watch Miss America, you know that a very talented um, Indian doctor won the Miss America beauty pageant today, and. I remember one of the comments that came through on ABC was the fact that 
she's dark-skinned, so a big accomplishment in the United States to have someone of Indian origin win the event. But she probably couldn't have won that competition in India. She couldn't, she probably could not have been Miss India because she is, I think, southern and dark-skinned. Now, I'm not saying Indians are racist, but I'm not going down that route. But what I am saying is that there, the racial tensions within emerging economies are equal to, if not larger than the racial tensions between developed and emerging economies. I mean, you know, you can look at places like, uh, you know, we've had situations whereby, you know, if you were a dark-skinned client from Vietnam, Burma, and we send them into do, you know, we place them in offices in Singapore and so on, or even in Thailand, they are treated really badly. Even within China, we have situations whereby, you know, dark-skinned females and males are treated very differently from their lighter-skinned peers. And it, it is a particularly big problem. Now, I've had the misfortune or fortune of spending my entire life consulting in the emerging economies, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle Africa, the Middle East, and um, the former Soviet Union. And let me let me give you some anecdotes here, right? In Latin America, I can assure you that they have not ever had the um, pleasure of being advised by dark-skinned individuals. That, that's a fact. You know, when I was there, I saw no management consultants of African origin. I saw one management consultant of Indian origin who was dark-skinned, and that was it. Right, most of them were males from either the UK partners, or from the Spanish, or from Spain, or from the United States, or from from Germany. Right, oh, again, a white male. Africa, Africa is a mixed bag again. It depends. Right, if you are consulting in Nigeria or South Africa, um, a South African, because of the you know post-apartheid transition, yes, many senior. Um, uh, partners of Indian and African origin and other ethnic groups. And Nigeria is the same, quite a few senior partners of African origin. So there's definitely more um, acceptance, I think, within Africa. Middle East, don't even go down that route. If you are dark-skinned and you arrived in the Middle East, it is likely that the executive is going to think that you are one of the workers on the street who somehow stole a suit and arrived in his executive office, and he may call security. Now, that's not to say that... Um, Darker-skinned people um, do not have any traction in the Middle East. That's not true. There's quite a lot of Indian partners in the Middle East, but I think that the only reason they are there is because they have the halo effect of the McKinsey or BCG brand around them. And if you took away that halo effect, and they just were, you know, a McKinsey, if it just was a person who happened to be dark-skinned that you met on the street, you're probably not going to talk to him. And that's not a judgment on the Middle East. It's a fact that it is difficult for darker-skinned people to do work there. Now, I've saved the two best ones for last. The former Soviet Union, where I've had the grand pleasure of spending most of my time consulting the clients, especially in Central Asia. I can assure you right now, there are not a lot of dark-skinned people doing management consulting work in the, middle, in, in the former Soviet Union, particularly on the in Russia. And then if you go to the Central Asian states now... I think that Russia is is a bit of um, it. It is a bit of a, a riddle in the sense that I think that if you 
can adapt to Russian culture and if you are dark-skinned you will not have problems operating with Russian executives because I think that the most senior Russian executives tend to be oligarchs you know they own the businesses as opposed to being CEOs with where who don't own their businesses and they tend to be open to listening to the most talented people no matter where they where they come from because it's their money on the line there's also another reason why Russia has been more open to to I think um, listening to advice from from and I'm using Indian as an example here because if you look at management consulting there's one ethnic group that does do very well and those are Indians from India right you know when Lakshmi Mittal consolidated um, Arsalan Mittal and he had a big role to play in Russia and you know Kazakhstan and so on there there is more of an appreciation for the skills of that ethnic group but not a lot Central Asia I've never seen anyone dark skin doing work in Central Asia so people always are surprised you know because I do have darker features you know how in the world do you do you survive in Central Asia and I always pointed to them is that I'm going to get to how you survive in a few minutes because it's quite important is that you survive because you build personal relationships with the client and yeah there are going to be issues but you're getting a referral at the end of the day so you know they they know who you are so when they refer when when a colleague of the of your future client refers you they know what they are getting asia i've built no traction in asia i think if, if you're dark skin and you're going to asia just go back home it, it's difficult now i'm not saying asians are racist what i am saying is that every nation is racist yep so asians are racist too but are they more racist than americans no are they more racist than africans no but they're racist in their own way they're just where you same way europeans are racist in their own way and so on every nation is prejudiced you, you cannot avoid that to say a nation is not prejudiced is actually you know it's, it's a fallacy you will be if you go through life thinking that you will end up with very little because you're going to be setting yourself up for failure but the point is there are certain nations that look down on other countries and in Asia there's a reason why Indian partners and again I'm using Indian partners because they are the dominant minor ethnic group in management consulting firms don't do well they don't do well in Asia there are Indian partners obviously but most of them tend to be centered around Australia and Singapore but you're never going to find an Indian partner leading the Singapore practice you're never going to find an Indian partner leading the Japanese practice. You will never find an Indian partner running the greater China practice. It's not going to happen anytime soon, right? Now, racism is an issue. You can't avoid it. And to pretend it's not an issue is to is to not prepare yourself to deal with reality. Now, I, I, I think there are two kinds of racism here. Or, or racial racial prejudices. I think there's the there's the disconnect between emerging and developing nations, which we're all aware of. But I think also within emerging economies, there are their own racial prejudices. Whereby you know, in some countries, if you are, you know, darker skinned, you can't even if you're a citizen of that nation, you cannot or will not have access to the same kind of privileges as lighter skinned people and you know India is one example of that most of the emerging markets are like that you know parts of Korea are like that 
parts of China are like that, parts of Vietnam are like that. There is a reason why one of the fastest selling products for Lancome and Clinique in parts of Asia is skin whitening cream, where women are actually trying to make themselves fairer because it's more attractive, right? Now, let's talk about the types of clients you deal with in these situations. I think there are two types of clients here. There are clients who do not know they are displaying signals of racial prejudice. So they will arrive in a meeting and dismiss you because of your skin color, but they don't see that as being negative. And then there are clients who know they are being prejudiced and are aware of it, but will dismiss you. I think those are the two dominant groups. And then there's the third group. The client who knows he may be racially prejudiced does not dismiss you, doesn't accept you, but doesn't really know how to deal with you, right? Now, the, the issue is here, how do you deal with these things? How do you deal with racial prejudice in a consulting environment? I, I think there are three ways to deal with it. The one is you make something of it. So you imagine you're arriving at a client site, you are the case leader and you're a black female, for example, and you're dealing with a, I don't know, a, um, let's say, a Saudi Arabian client. I'm picking Saudi Arabian. I mean, I'm not saying Saudis are more racist than other nations. I just have to give some example rather than saying a racist client. So let's say you're dealing with a Saudi client here who doesn't want to accept you. Now, you have a choice here. You, you, you make it an issue with the client whereby you 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 know you tell the client look I'm uncomfortable with the fact you don't accept me and I think it's important you address me rather than, ex than addressing my uh, two associates who look like German models right um, male associates and you go back to the partner from McKinsey and say look this has happened and I need you to support me now the reason why I wouldn't recommend this course of action is because nothing good is going to come out of it firstly by by telling the client you've got to accept them, you, by, by asking the client to accept you for who you are, you are telling the client they are racist. Calling someone racist, even if they are racist, is never going to help you. You're finished. The client's going to get upset because you've made him look bad. You've called him a racist. The partner cannot do anything. What do you think the partner is going to go? Call the client and say, you've got to treat my um, female Nigerian lady well because the Human Rights Convention says you should? No. The partner has no control over the client. The client's going to get rid of you. And the mere fact that a partner's going to call the client means you have no traction anyway. So don't do that. You know, just because someone treats you badly doesn't mean it's your opportunity to get onto a podium and lecture them. Now, this first option of where you, you know, politely ask the client to address you you are still politely telling the client they are racist. You can do whatever way you want, but if you do that, you're calling attention to the client's subconscious, implicit, explicit prejudices. Call it whatever you want, but the fact is you're calling attention to it. Now, that's option one of reactions. Option two is where you make the client feel bad about it. And I've seen this. I have seen younger consultants and older people when they face what they think is racism, they become emotional about it. I mean, I was once in a plane and this um, father and son, I don't know what was going on, it was business class and I was watching a movie and the only reason I stopped 
paying attention to what was happening in the movie, which is a very interesting movie, so it had to be in a big brawl for me to stop paying attention, is I could hear these voices over the, you know, headphones. And, you know, this um, black father and a black kid were talking to some passengers in the front and and the the point when something goes oh the only reason you're doing this is because i'm black and you don't know who i am and i'm this powerful person blah 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 now for all i know those passengers in the front did something that you know racially or whatever demeaned this uh, father and son but i don't think attacking the other person is going to give you any it, it, so so what is the objective of attacking the other person you when you attack someone you make them feel bad when you make someone feel bad they don't want to have anything to do with you and they may withdraw or worse they may attack back and that's never fun for anyone right so if you if you feel that you are mistreated due to racial prejudices do not attack the other person i've seen people do that and it is an automatic failure because two things, not only are you drawing attention to the other person's prejudices, you are giving them ammunition to continue their behavior. As perverse as that sounds, when you attack someone, you give them reason to attack you back. Now, I don't care if the attack, if the attack is justified. In fact, the word justified should be inverted commas. Nothing can be justified. The point is, when someone wants to be demeaning towards you, if these people in the front of the plane did make a racial comment towards his father and son, they are simply looking for a reason to continue their behavior. Now, you can argue you and say, well, no, the father has a right to do it, and, you know, he should have done it. But what does he get out of it? I mean, really, what do you get out of that? Nothing. You make someone feel bad. You make someone feel miserable about themselves. And worse, you give them ammunition to attack you back. And, you know, people always like to say, well, you know, if these things happen, it's wrong. There are human rights and so on. And I agree, there are human rights, but there's no legal system to send this through, right? What is going to happen? The father is going to take these uh, passengers in the front and take them through a legal system and they get to apologize, pay reparations or something. No. The best course of action is not to respond to it. And I know that doesn't sound right, but you should not respond to it. As a management consultant, you cannot respond to it. As a management consultant, your job is to very subtly educate the client on how to treat you without telling them how to treat you. And I'll give you some examples of my own experiences here, right? Now, I'm going to talk about an experience I had in South Africa when I was there on a project, in Chile when I was on a project, and Turkey when I was on a project. Now, if you know South Africa's racial background, it is pretty horrible, right? I mean, you know, apartheid for something like 50 years, um, people of um, certain ethnic backgrounds like the, you know, uh, black people in South Africa were basically put into, we were moved out of their homes, and and they, the government tried to resettle them into you know, for lack of a better word, reserves, like what you have in the United States for Indians, and, and they only wanted them to stay there, and it was a horrible system. Now, when I, I was once stationed under a project in South Africa whereby I had to advise a company that was founded by the Afrikaners. The Afrikaners were the people that, um, well, the majority of 
the national party, the old national party that instituted the apartheid rules, uh, were Afrikaners. And this was an Afrikaner company, a mining company of Afrikaner heritage. And I was assigned to work with a very senior executive on the uh, management committee. And my team was 100% non-white. And it was a difficult thing because culturally we don't get along with him. I mean, culturally, I wouldn't get along with him at all. He's South African, right? And he's, you know, a modern South African. But I think, you know, just, you know, I think if you're Swiss or something or you're or British, you'll find a way to connect. But if you don't have any connection with this person at all, it's pretty difficult. So, so what did I do? I mean, you walk into the guy's office and he's got memorabilia from the 1980s, 1970s, nothing offensive. But he, he he's into rugby sports that I actually have no idea what the hell rugby is about it looks like american football played without any protection it's like american football without a condom basically right you know you are going to get hurt in that game now you arrive in there you have no connection with this guy what do you do he's uncomfortable dealing with you you're uncomfortable dealing with him well you're not really uncomfortable dealing with him but he's uncomfortable dealing with you and that shows so you know, I walk into his office and I see all the football, all the rugby stuff, and I just start talking about rugby. I have known nothing about rugby, but I start talking about, oh, I see you support this team, so, you know, did you watch the game? I mean, vaguely, I know there's a game going on because it's on all over the news. I don't know anything about who's, who's being played. I don't know where it's being played, but I start talking about that. And the first meeting revolved around that. So what did I do? It was a Thursday, I think. What did I do on Friday evening? I went to a bar and I watched rugby. Then... I went to a sports store in a, in a, in a, I forget the name of the shopping mall, and I bought a rugby jersey of the team he supports. Then the next thing I did is I bought tickets, and I went to watch a rugby game, and I took him along for that. Now, there are some of you listening to this who will say, but Michael, why did you have to change? Why did he have, why didn't he change? Well, it's a little bit like being in a relationship. You're married to someone, and you know how it gets after a while, right? Whereby each of the couples start saying, oh, I don't want to change for you. You've got to change for me. Does it really matter at the end of the day who changes if you're both happy? Now, I don't know anything about rugby, but I can assure you today rugby is my favorite sport because of him. Um, I watched the games. I ended up liking the games. I loved the culture. I don't know if you ever watched rugby in South Africa, Australia, or New Zealand, but it is an amazing culture. It is like you are transported to a different world. And it is an, an amazing game once you get to know it. Now, in this particular situation, I use sports to connect with the person. And I must be honest with you, I actually ended up really liking the game once I understood the culture behind it it's not about the game the game's irrelevant but i understood the culture the africana culture that sets the heritage you know why they play the games they do and i must be honest with you after a while his, his, his entire committee his entire operating team are also you know africana white people they speak a language we don't know they talk about things we don't know but I, I attended it. I made a point of attending cultural events. I made a point of taking his wife and him out. I made a point of not belittling or criticizing. And I could have said that, you know, when they were talking about things that we didn't understand, I could have always said, oh, why didn't you guys watch this? You know, why don't you talk about this? But to do that, 
is to imply that they're doing it to hurt you. And I don't think they're doing it to hurt you. So a lot of times, racial prejudices are not a weapon to make you feel bad. They are the way someone has been brought up and they don't actually understand how to connect with you. The only way for them to go about their day is to do what they've always done, which can be offensive to an individual. So I remember this one thing. I don't know if you ever heard. There's a term called a, a chop and a dop. It, it's it's it is in the mines in South Africa. What they do is they take a drum and they cut it in half. They put wood into it and they find a piece of metal. They put it on the top and they have a barbecue. It's called a chop and a dop. I don't know where that comes from, but that's what it's called. And they would do this at the mines, and we join them. It's part of their heritage. And then after a while, you bond with them on their heritage and they say, oh, and then they ask, hey, what are you doing this week? And I'll say, oh, I'm going to do this. And they say, oh, we've never seen that. Can we come along? And then they'll come along. So the point is, you know, it doesn't matter who starts the compromise, but at the end of the process, both sides have compromised. I think that's the problem when you get these racial situations where no party wants to be the first one to 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 almost let their ego down and say, hey, I'm willing to learn. And, and I must tell you something right now. That client is my favorite client and became my best friend. And I was a very young consultant when this, uh, you know, when, when I built a relationship with him and that made my career. The fact that I could build a relationship with this client who had zero heritage, zero traction, and we did a remarkable piece of work for them that, you know, set us up in a sector where at that time the firm had very little traction. Let's talk about Chile, right? Chile is the same thing. You know, you go to Chile and it is a very, very parochial culture because Chileans, now I'm going to say something again which may offend some Chileans, but this is true. Chileans are descendants not from the majority of Chileans, especially the Chileans who control the armed forces and industry, are not descendants of the native Indians from South America. They are predominantly descendants of Germans, Serbians, and Spaniards and Portuguese who came to Chile, you know, 150 years ago. And they pride themselves on that distinctiveness from the rest of Latin America. So you arrive there and you are, you know, you're not, you know, the Chileans obviously look up to the Americans because of their military history and cooperation. And they obviously look up to the Spaniards to some extent and Europeans. And you arrive there and you have none of this background and you're probably the first non-European, well, non-Europeans maybe, a non-blue-eyed, blonde-haired executive guiding, a consulting partner guiding this executive. And the executive is thinking, how should he listen to you or not? And I'll be honest with you, there were times when Chilean executives would look at you because of your dark hair and slightly, you know, darker features, and they don't know what to do with you. You know, why are they listening to this guy? And, and what I found is that the executives are dismissive towards me at times. They were, I remember sitting in a meeting with one person, and I, I'm meeting the, not with one person, I think that's maybe, let me give you a different story here, uh, a story that's more, that could have gone south very quickly. But um, we once had a meeting with the executive committee of one of the largest mining companies in the world, based out of Chile. And it was a big meeting for us. The first time the firm had ever gotten an audience with that particular client, because that was a McKinsey client, front and center, right? And McKinsey was doing a lot of work for them. 
organizational changes and so on. And and the question is, now how do we build a relationship with them? And I came up with this idea of how they could take learnings from other industries and apply it to what they were going through. Because of my experience with state-owned enterprises, they found it quite interesting for me to talk about some of my private experience. So anyway, I'd sent these emails back and forth to the head of strategy of the company who had never met me, right? He doesn't know what I look like. We're pen pals, buddy. We are pen buddies. And even though the firm had had previous experience with him, he never really liked what the firm told him. And one of the partners from the Chilean office said, hey, why don't you speak to him? You seem to, you know, like talking to people about stuff that, you know, about organizational strategies and turnarounds and so on. Why don't you talk to him? So I sent him a few emails and he liked what I said. And he, and he said, you know, what, you know, this sounds very interesting, but why don't you come and speak to our, you know, some of our senior people? And I said, yeah, no problem. Why not? So, Anyway, I didn't think it would be such a senior meeting, but after a few emails and back and forth and after we, you know, I saw the names of who was attending and I don't know any of these people, so I forwarded to the Chilean office and said, do you know these people? And I said, yeah, we know these people. These are senior people. These guys sit on the executive committee. So, you know, if they want to see you, you must come across. And I think it's important that two of the local partners also go with you from the Chilean office, you know, who, who are from Chile and speak Spanish. So I go, I'll go along for this meeting. And this was early in my career when I was, if you see me now, I'm quite young looking. If you saw me then, I look like a child. But anyway, I arrived at this meeting and it's all in Spanish, which is obviously putting me at a disadvantage. And I don't fit the culture, right? And... the meeting begins and I ask for a translator that's not working the translator makes everything go bad so what I do is I ask for the translator to stop and I slow down the way I speak to to you know basically I was going to do a certain kind of discussion but I changed the discussion to emphasize the key points which is pretty difficult to do when you're speaking to an audience, I mean, the room has like 18 people in it. You know, I just thought it's going to be three people, but the executive committee members come with their support staff, their assistants, and everyone's there ready to take notes. Oh, wow, this is going to be a big meeting. Now, the interesting thing is when that meeting started, because no one had ever actually seen me, they addressed the Chilean partners as, oh, Michael, thank you for making time. And then and then the most senior partner says, oh, I'm not Michael. And then the, exec the most senior guy from the client side turns to the other older guy and says, oh, Michael, sorry. And then he says, oh, I'm not Michael. And then they look at me and, oh, who's this kid they bring along? And this is Michael? So this is who we made time for? And it could have gone very quickly south there because you could see the surprise in the executive's face, right? And obviously, I don't look anything like European royalty, so... I'm not going to fit in there very quickly. So anyway, I take it into stride and say, yeah, yeah, don't worry, everyone makes this mistake. I need to use my, my ethnic name. It'll be easier to pick me out in the crowd. So anyway, my point is that you can make humor about things. And actually, you get a lot of attention, right? When you don't look the way people expect you to look, you get a lot of attention very quickly. And, you know, one thing I've learned from a very young age is that because I joined management consulting when I was 21 years old, I always was the youngest person in the room. I always didn't look the way people wanted me to look. This first two minutes, you get attention out of morbid curiosity. you like a funny-looking fish or a funny-looking animal in a zoo where everyone's looking at you and wants to poke you. But at least they're looking at you, right? And you've got two minutes to take that attention driven out of morbid curiosity to con to convert it into attention because you have something intelligent to say. So, now that there are a couple of tactics you can follow here. The one is to 
be very, very gracious about it. So thank you for the meeting, you know, blah, 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 which is what most people do. Of course, I'm grateful for the meeting, but they're not, they don't care if I'm grateful for the meeting. They, they, these guys are running a multi, multi-billion dollar business and they want to know what they can do differently because things are not working. So I always start with a punchline. I think that the massive turnaround you are driving is going to not succeed for these reasons. And I want to take the time to talk you through why I think it's not going to succeed if you continue as you are going and we can have a discussion about how right my my thinking is here. Now, obviously, I was not as blunt as that, right? I mean, I, I do not want to insult people, but I also got to hook them with something very interesting. So again, what happens here, you get someone, the, again, the, imagine a funny fish or a funny animal in the zoo, which is telling you something that is pretty controversial. So again, all the junior people are looking at the senior guy, is he going to throw something at me? Is he going to tell me to get out of the room? But if you know something about senior people, you will know that they won't tell you to get out of the room because if you if you were right and they were doing something wrong and they dismissed you, there are witnesses that you know they dismissed you and it could come back to bite them. So they have to listen to you because they have to dismiss you on merit. And the only way to do that is to listen to you. So automatically you hook them and the junior people are looking at the senior people to see what's going to happen. But the senior person is going, and you know, you've got to read your cards right here. So obviously I checked out his bio and I knew he'd been in the firm a long time. And also the mere fact that he's taking this meeting on, on quite a left field idea means that they are struggling with something. So you've got to read the underlying dynamics. Now, the one thing I always tell people is what's going to separate the great consultants from the average consultants, how whether you can read people. So anyway, when I say that, the two senior partners from Chile are obviously a little bit terrified. You can see the blood drain from one's face. And I go through this meeting. And, and I draw a lot of experiences from a firm, from another company I'd done work from and similar companies. And I talk them through exactly why I think the turnaround is going to fail and what they need to do. It and it actually went very well, that meeting. You know, It was an absolute success. And, and I could see that scene, the, the, the three senior guys sitting there and taking a lot of notes as I was speaking which is good. Maybe they just do that all the time. But I was told later that they don't do that. They found the meeting very entertaining and very useful. And obviously, we ended up doing work for them out of that meeting and a couple of more meetings. My point is, that's an example whereby I could have just shrunk into my body when they, you know, when they didn't know who I was or have been slighted by it or I could have felt, oh, it's going to affect my confidence. You know, come on, this is not kindergarten. In the real world, people will dismiss you all the time. Your job is not to take it to heart, right? You just got to move on and move on. And that's an example whereby I played them based off their, you know, seniority. When you tell a senior person, hey, you know what, you're making fundamental mistakes in your business. You get their attention, but you have to be able to back it up. And you have to do it in a very sincere way. And I, and I, I think that because I really mean well, I'm not just saying things to get attention. I have done my research. I've poured through their balance sheet and income statement. I've actually interviewed some of the employees before I've you know, arrived there. I know what I'm talking about. So that worked very well. Now, let's talk about Turkey. Right? I've done a lot of work in Turkey. For those of you who followed my podcast, you know I actually love Turkey. I think it's an amazing country, and I would live in Turkey. I would go to Istanbul, and I would buy a yacht, and I would sail on the Bosphorus every day, sipping margaritas and whatever they drink in Turkey. 
that's how much I love Turkey. But Turkey, you don't see many, many non, I would say, fair-skinned Turks running that country. If you are dark-skinned, darkish, let's say you're from dark-skinned Eastern European kind to Indian to African, you're not going to be doing a lot of work in Turkey. They don't look up to dark-skinned people. So on one of the projects that I was assigned to, it was a very important project in the Turkish office, we were helping a bank with a new strategy. And again, this was very early in my career. Obviously, I like traveling around, being away from home and going to these exotic locations. Uh, and I still have, you know, the memories of Turkey are amazing. And there were two issues I had to deal with here. Firstly, again, I keep a quite a low profile. Even then, I've always believed in that. So a lot of times people know of my work, but they don't really know who I am. They read about the study that was done at this client. And I, I, and I remember this very clearly. So there's, the way that I got involved in this is that the, um, the, the partner running the banking practice for the firm was struggling to get someone who had very specific knowledge in creating... Um, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Securitized assets for microfinance entities, right? Which I'd done before. I'd done a lot of work in that. It was my own little sweet spot in those days. And I'd written some things internally within the firm on some ideas on how we could do that and some of the ways we could influence strategy. And uh, it had been circulated amongst the firm and people had known about that work then. It, it, this was a long time ago before it was a big deal. Now everyone's writing about it. And I remember this partner had arranged a call with all of the people who had some experience in looking at deleveraging risk for banks, particularly microfinance banks. And he arranged a call with something like 25 people around the world with the Turkish partner on the call. And he gets out of the call and says, and he speaks to all the people, I don't say anything. I mean, what am I going to do? He hasn't asked me any questions. In the end, he says, oh, is Michael here? And I say, yeah, I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm happy to help in whatever way I can. So again, you know, the Turkish office doesn't know me that well, but because the senior partner wanted me there, they say, yeah, why don't you come along? We, you know, we've seen the work you've done. It's exactly what the client is looking for. So there's a meeting scheduled to meet the board of um, a very large Turkish bank on a Wednesday. And I'm arriving on Sunday morning. I usually arrive on a Sunday morning, and I'm going to meet the Turkish partners for the first time. On a Monday morning, and because I have this very strange-sounding surname, no one knows what the hell I look like. I mean, they, they, there's guesses. Is he Polish? Mm. Is he from some funny part of India? Is he, um, is he a gypsy? Is he mixed? I mean, people don't know, right? The point is, you arrive there, and they're immediately a little bit surprised because you look like a damn teenager, and you don't meet the accepted standards for what partners look like when they arrive to meet the board of one of the largest banks in Asia Minor. So anyway, so I had to deal with two issues there. Firstly, I have to convince the Turkish office in Istanbul that I'm, I know what I'm talking about. And I don't think there was any problem there. I think that initially you were a bit surprised, but they, they accepted it, right? The client was a completely different issue. I mean, they were like, 
you, you, I think some of them were openly smirking that there was someone. At that time, I was 25 years, 26 years old, I think, when I was actually going to be leading the presentation because I knew this topic backwards and forwards better than even the partners I had reported to. And, and I think, you know, just an aside here, I wouldn't say I'm smarter than the partners. Definitely not. I don't, I've never thought that I was intellectually, I don't thought that I was numerically sharper than most people, but I was conceptually better than most people. But where I was really excelled was my ability to, to communicate that. So while other people knew more than me, they weren't able to weave these stories and they weren't able to present these compelling arguments. So this presentation starts with this Turkish partner standing up, introducing us and talking about the work we're doing. And they say, okay, and here we have Michael who is going to, who has done this before and is going to talk you through you know, his experiences of doing this at other microfinance you know, banks around the world and some of the lessons that you know, we could apply here as we explore the feasibility of setting up a microfinance division for you. And I go through this entire presentation. Initially, again, they look at you like you're a funny-looking fish or a funny-looking animal in the zoo. They just want to poke you. So again, two minutes of morbid curiosity, and you've got to dazzle them. And again, I can assure you the only way to dazzle people is to know the numbers better than that CFO. And the CFO is in the meeting, right? Now, I've always said that People don't like numbers, and people don't understand numbers. So if you want to get attention, you know the numbers very well. So I set up in the meeting, and I started to you know, put up some of the metrics of the company. I started to break down the metrics. And one eye is on the CFO to see if he's agreeing, and the other eye is on the, CF, is on the team to see if they understand the link between the strategy and the numbers I'm talking about. Now, this is the way it works in any meeting. I can tell you this right now. The executive committee is going to wait for the CFO to, to shake his head. If the CFO doesn't shake his head, if he disagrees with the number, you're finished. You, you're toast. So that's exactly what happens, right? The, the senior people look at the CFO. The CFO turns around to an assistant or whatever and asks to confirm something. The assistant comes, shakes her head, and says yes. The CFO then um, starts nodding because he agrees with the numbers. So you pass the competency hurdle. Now, the competency hurdle is the only hurdle you have to pass to overcome racial prejudice. Because everywhere in the world, right, if you can add value to a company, they really don't care what you look like, where you come from, or who your grandfather was. As long as you can add value to the business, they're going to, ex you know, they're going to accept you. So th the competency hurdle is the only way to pass this. Now, let me explain to you. Now, I've given you three examples here. Right? All went well. The reason why most people sabotage themselves is because they become emotional before getting to the point of passing the competency hurdle. When you are treated badly, you don't respond negatively, you don't respond emotionally. You just make light of it and, you know, unless someone is, you know, blatantly being racist towards you in a very rude way, even, even if that happened, I would just, you know, walk away quietly. I wouldn't make a big deal about it. There's nothing to be gained from confronting someone because you don't know. If you confront someone, they may see it as an attack and they can respond verbally very badly or physically and you don't want that, right? But also, if you confront someone on an emotional basis, you're escalating things emotionally, but you're never going to you're never going to convince them to listen to you on a competency basis. And I can assure you that a lot of clients have dealt with probably 
didn't like me or a bit surprised when I arrived there. But after you spend some time talking to them, they realize, hey, hold on a second, this guy knows exactly what he's talking about. We have to listen to them. And again, it comes back to the point, you don't have to be liked to be a good consultant. You don't have to be pretty. It helps if you're an attractive-looking female who's tall with nice hair and so on. And if you're an attractive-looking male with nice hair and so on, nice blue eyes, looks like a rugby player, I'm sure it helps. But it only helps you for the first two to five minutes. The first two to five minutes, it it's going to help you if you look good, but if you can't so if you don't pass the competency test afterwards, you're never going to make it. Now, if you are, for example, a um, again the Nigerian, you know, female doing work in a country where they've never seen or they don't like black people, for that matter, what you've got to do is you've got to minimize the tension in the beginning, so that you can quickly move to the point where you prove your competency. And I'll repeat that. You want to minimize the tension up front to get to the competency test. Because when you pass the competency test, they will respect you. And I mean, they're not going to respect you immediately like a Disney movie. It may take a few meetings, but at least they will start respecting you. So yes, I mean, you know, I don't want to sum up too much here, but racism in management consulting is a big issue. I've seen it with Latin American consultants. I've seen it with African consultants. I've seen it with Indian consultants. I've seen it with Indian consultants within India not getting traction sometimes because of their, you know, backgrounds and so on. It's a big issue in Asia, massive issue in uh, the former Soviet Union. It's an issue in parts of the United States. It's an issue in parts of Canada. It's an issue in every country in the world. My point is, if you face these issues, you've got to bury your ego and remember why you are there. You are there to help the client. You are not there to educate them about United Nations human rights principles. You can do both if you are smart about it. And the way to do that is to not confront but to practice strategic patience. Do not belittle a client, do not make them feel bad, but show them that you deserve to be there, show them that you're easy to work with, show them that it is valuable to work with you, and through that process, I can assure you, you will change their minds about the way they may view your ethnicity. Right? And ethnicity is not always, you know, different colors. It's also, you know, within regions whereby some ethnic groups do not, you know, get along with others. And and you need to appreciate that. So hopefully this was a useful podcast. And again, I used examples here. I don't mean to demean any particular nation or group. It's what I have seen from a very small sample size based on my personal experiences. And your personal experiences may very well vary. But I would say that it is a real problem, irrespective of the examples I've used. And I hope that this podcast gives you some idea on how to deal with these things. Emotion is your worst enemy when it comes to these things. Enlightenment comes through accepting and being the first one to compromise. And through the process of being the first one to compromise, you show the other person that you are willing to look at things from their perspective. And through that process, show them your competence and they will say, hmm, maybe I should look at things from his perspective. It's, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight.